In our remaining time this morning, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I want us to read verses 1 to 14 of Romans 6 as the setting for our preaching ministry this morning. You follow along as I read in the English Standard Version of the Bible, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism or through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old man was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has lordship over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no lordship over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In Romans 6, 1-14, we have the classic New Testament Pauline text on the so-called indicative imperative. If you have been with us in the first three messages of this series entitled, Dead to Sin, Alive to Christ, you will remember that I've been speaking of the fact that for the Apostle Paul, what we do as Christians must be based upon what we are as Christians. For those of you who have not been here and you're visiting with us, I've been teaching in Romans 6 that for Paul... His classic understanding, his presentation of the indicative imperative motif, the more grammatically and theologically technical terms, which describe both the believer's being, that's indicative, and doing, that's imperative, in and of the Christian life. The being in the Christian life always comes first. Always. Before you can do anything in the Christian life, you must be an actual Christian. Or to put it in another way, before you can live as a Christian, you must first be a Christian. 
Now, I know that that probably begs the question. It seems pretty simple if you think about it. But so many people appear, or so it seems to me, to greatly misunderstand the nature of things Christian. They see those who say they're Christians living an immoral, inconsistent, disobedient life, and yet presume that merely because they say they're Christians, they then must be Christians. Or you will inevitably watch those who profess Christ, who then express absolutely no desire to be intimate with Christ. Either way, watching the actual lives of professing Christians or simply hearing the verbiage of professing Christians, they are not grasping what Paul says you must grasp in order to live as a true, genuine Christian living among other genuine Christians. And the key to it all, the most fundamental aspect of understanding and then living for the Christian, that is, is to grasp the truth of first being in or with Christ, and then secondly, doing what Christ commands. The concept of being with Jesus Christ, indicative of you as a Christian, is what Paul has been teaching us here in the first ten verses of Romans chapter 6. You remember that I said to you that he tells them four things about themselves, four statements of being, four facts, four promises of grace, for which he is not commanding them to do anything about. If you are wondering if you're a true Christian, these are the things for which you evaluate, you ponder, you assess about yourself. And they are, those dead to sin's powerful enslavement cannot now be characterized by its lifestyle. Verse 2 of Romans 6. Secondly, those dead to sin's powerful enslavement are now in vital union with Jesus Christ through His death and His burial and His resurrection. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Thirdly, those dead to sin's power have now been freed from its enslavement. Verses 6 and 7. And fourthly, the fourth indicative, those dead to sin's powerful enslavement now have a different Lord of life. Verses 8, 9, and 10. There is nothing for you to do with these promises of grace. Nothing. Because they are statements of fact about you. Now, it is true, of course, that you could do one thing about them. You could see if there are reality in your life. You could do that. So yes, in a sense, you could and should do something about them. But primarily, if you are a true Christian, these things are indicative of your life. If they are a part of your very being, you'll be challenged to do something in light of what is true about you. And that's where the imperatives of verses 11 to 14 come in. In other words, in light of verses 1 to 10, on the basis of verses 1 to 10, grounded upon what verses 1 to 10 say about you, you're no longer living in sin, you're now in a vital union with Christ, you're now utterly dead to sin's enslavement, and you're now serving a different Lord of life. In light of these realities, these truths, you must live out 
what you are and what you are becoming. And when the resurrection of your body occurs and when your vivified spirit goes to be with the Lord, there will be, in fact, a total and complete fulfillment of the living out of who you are in Christ. And you must keep on doing, Paul says, what you really are in Christ and what you're becoming. And in order for us to see that, I want to give you, just like those four indicatives in verses 1 to 10, four imperatives from verses 11 to 14. Four commands. Four commands. And here is the first one. Those dead to sin and alive to Christ must think exactly like that. Those dead to sin and alive to Christ must think exactly like that. Look at verse 11. Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I told you last time that according to the fourth and final point, which I just gave you of these indicatives of verses 1 to 10, specifically verses 8, 9, and 10, that those who are dead to sin's enslavement now serve a different Lord of life. Instead of serving sin and its enslavement, we now serve Jesus Christ, who's conquered sin and its dominion. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says, now, if we have died with Christ, we, re- we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has lordship or dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And now, verse 11, so you also. That little connector phrase there, so you also, obviously links back with verses 8, 9, and 10. With that in mind, he says, with what I just told you about Christ, that He died to sin, that He lives to God, so you also must consider something. That means whatever is true of Christ in verses 8, 9, and 10, specifically verse 10, must also be true of believers in verse 11 because of that so you also phrase. Even though Christ's death to sin does not mean that He was a sinner, personally, experientially, it does mean nevertheless that He died to sin's dominion. That means that He conquered it, not for Himself, of course, but for us, because it was a dominion which made us His slaves. It was not... The death He needed to die, it was the death we needed to die, and He died on our behalf. And so, the whole aspect of sin's dominion, sin's lordship, sin's enslaving power was broken in our lives because of the death that He died. And because of His conquering of death through His resurrection, we're now alive to God. We now can give glory to God. We can live to the glory of God. Just as it says about Christ in verse 10, He lives to God. We couldn't do that before. Whereas before, we could ever and only serve sin as our master, enslaved to all its various lusts, we now, through Christ's own death, to sin and His life to God, can be free from sin's enslavement and we can now live to God. What a thought. That we're liberated now to live for God. 
But I want you to realize that our present battle with remaining sin starts first, Paul says, in these four commands, it starts first with your thinking. Not immediately with the deeds of your life, but with your thinking. Running right out of these four indicatives, he says, I I, I still am not asking you to do something in the deed aspect of your life. I still want you to think about something, but I'm commanding you to do so. It's not talking about your being here. It's talking about your doing. And the first doing that you're supposed to do is your thinking. And by the way, this is present tense imperative. Continually thinking. You must make it your habit of thinking. You must be constantly thinking about your status as one of those involved in the new creation in Christ. And that's why our first outline point says you must think exactly like the facts about you. That you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's not asking you to do anything but continually think about the things of your life and that you are truly dead to sin and alive to Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? What's the, what's the practical implications of that? Well, let me, let me ask you some practical questions. When you are choosing to sin... When, when that sinful temptation is out there in front of you, it's before you, when you're thinking of choosing to do that sin, when was the last time you attempted to first to stop and ask, think, reason regarding your position in Christ? I'll be even more practical. For instance, when you took that television remote control into your hand, in order to watch something that wasn't godly, did you think first about being dead to sin and alive to Christ? Did you think about that? You profess to know Christ. You say you love Christ. If you are a true Christian, you're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. And when you put that remote in your hand and you go and you flip around looking for something that you know ultimately will not be godly, do you first stop and think about your life with Christ, about your deadness to sin. That's what he's calling us to do here. Or how about this? When you put your hand on the computer mouse in order to view pornography, did you ponder your death to sin and your life, your new life in Christ? When you used your legs to walk into that movie theater in order to view a film that you know in your heart Jesus Christ would never have ever watched, did you consider your death to sin's enslavement and your life with Christ? When you yelled at your wife, when you treated her with hatred or contempt, or when you did so with your children, did you contemplate the reality that you do not need to respond to them that way because you are dead to sin's dominion? doesn't have its lordship over you, not as a Christian. You can actually say no to sin. Think it through. When you are embittered against that someone who has wounded you, or some ones who have wounded you. Did you realize that you can overcome evil with good because you are dead to sin and alive to Christ? When you were lazy and decided to miss corporate worship, did you understand that being dead to sin and alive to Christ places you now with the desire to discipline yourself for godliness in order to worship with the saints of God? You could go on and on, couldn't you? Pick out your pet sins. Ask yourself the question, how often have I thought 
Have I considered? Have I pondered? Have I realized that I'm dead to sin? I don't have to do this. I can break that that pattern. I can see it move away from my life because I don't have to do it. Indeed, I don't want to do it. I don't have to be enslaved to it. Beloved, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. And those who are truly converted to Christ must continually think about their deadness to sin and about their ever-increasing consciousness of their aliveness to Christ. We must think exactly like what is true about us, that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Secondly, those dead to sin and alive to Christ must not let sin rule in them. They must not let sin rule in them. Look at verse 12 of Romans 6. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. And now, Paul moves from thought action to deed action. And he first says that sin must not reign in your mortal bodies. And he's not suggesting here, as some have said, that the Roman Christians were allowing sin to reign in them, and he's now commanding these believers to stop it. That's not his point. The very fact that they are in Christ means that that sin dominion has already been broken. He's not telling them to stop what is the rule of their life. That would undermine everything he's been telling them about their new status in Christ. Rather, he's simply commanding them to live out the truth, the promise of grace, that sin's reign has been defeated by the cross of Christ. Sin doesn't have to be your continuing Lord. In fact, He is not. Remember verses 8, 9, and 10? They have a new Lord. They serve now a different Lord of life, the Lord Jesus, who on their behalf has broken sin's grip on them. They don't need and they must not let sin act as their continuing master. This is true, he says, because of what he teaches in the first part of verse 14. Look at it. Sin will have no dominion, no lordship. That word dominion comes from the Greek word kurios, means Lord. You have a new Lord, the Lord Christ. You don't have to have another Lord. In fact, you can't. Isn't that fantastic? You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to serve sin. It's been broken in your life. You must not, because if you're a child of God, you cannot let sin reign in your mortal body. And by the way, what does he mean by mortal body there? What does that mean? It just simply means your whole person. And what I think he's doing is he's personifying the human body as the body of sin. In fact, he says that in Romans 6, 6, doesn't he? That sin's dominion has been broken in the body of sin. It's just talking about your whole person, including your mind, and then how your mind takes its thoughts and works them out in the sinful activity of your life, your body, even your physical body. This is how it is, isn't it? Sin takes a foothold in your mind. It assaults your mind. And then when it assaults your mind, it triggers the use of your physical body in order to carry out the sinful activity. Did I not just bring some of those to our minds when I said you put that remote control in your hand? You use your legs to walk places you shouldn't go. 
You let your eyes see things they shouldn't see. You let your ears hear things they shouldn't hear. The mind triggers through its imagination the body and its doing of evil deeds. And Paul is simply saying, look at your mortal body, your whole person, your mind, and you should not, you cannot let it rain, sin rain in your mortal bodies. And I think the main reason he uses this phrase, mortal bodies, is because of the next phrase in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. The body's passions. That means, of course, the mind's passions. And it's not talking in some platonic dualism, some idea like ancient Greece where the body is inherently evil, the material world is inherently evil and everything spiritual or spirit is, is good. That's, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not saying that when we are born into this world, it's inherent that our bodies are the issue, that our bodies are the evil thing, that our spirits are the good thing. That's, that's that Platonic dualism. That's Greek thought. That's not biblical thought. We understand quite well, don't we, what he's talking about. We have thoughts in our minds, pleasures, desires, passions. And once we've conceived these passions in our minds, and by the way, that's the word Paul uses there, epithumia, passions, some contexts actually referring to good desires, like 1 Timothy 3.1 when it says that a candidate for eldership is desiring. He's desiring a good thing. That's a good use of that word. But often it's in the context of evil Evil passions, evil desires, evil lusts. And those passions are put into action by our bodies. Through our physical bodies, what we do with our bodies. And he says it, it can't be that way. You have to understand that you've died to that. Look over in your Bibles at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul uses some very similar language about not gratifying the desires of the flesh. The flesh, of course, being both the mind and then what the mind produces in the bodily actions. He says in Galatians 5.16, for instance, But I say, does Paul, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the dictates of the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The epithumia of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're at war with one another. In fact, we could say it like this if we used Romans 6 language. The desires of the flesh, that's Adam. That's the old man. That's the old life. That's the old realm. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if you are walking by that Spirit, by Him, you are walking in the realm of the Christ-like life, Christ as the head, the Spirit empowering you to live. And that's why the Spirit's against the flesh and the flesh is against the Spirit. They oppose each other. For what purpose? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The law condemns. You're not under that law because you're led by the Spirit. And the works of the flesh, he even says, I'm going to give you a real practical lesson. The works of the flesh are evident, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's witchcraft, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do habitually practice, is what that's saying, those who habitually practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at the transition, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the realm of the Spirit, what's manifested by the Spirit's work in the life of those who are seeing Christ as their head, the head of their race, the head of the race of the redeemed. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It transcends law because it's being done by the Spirit in your life. And those who belong to Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh. We've died to it. We've died with Christ, with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, if that's under whose realm we are, let us also walk by the Spirit in the daily aspects of our lives. But, guess what, Christian? You don't have to live that way because you've been delivered from it. You've been delivered from it. Indeed, you will not be characterized as habitually obeying the evil passions, whether it's Romans 6 or Galatians 5, of your heart, because according to verse 6, the body of sin has been rendered powerless. It's true of you. It must not reign in your mortal bodies because Christ is your new Lord. And your thinking and your actions are now different. And don't we hear that often, either in the waters of baptism or you're talking to someone who's new in Christ and they say things like this, it's just, it's just a whole new world out there. I see everything that's so different to me now. My attitudes are different. My actions are different. My thinking is different. I never thought these things before. I now, I now don't want to use people. I want to love people. I want to serve people. Well, that's because... They're dead to sin and they're alive to Christ. For which I must ask you here today, which dominion is it for you? Are you powerless to say no to sin's rule and reign? Or does sin dog your steps to no end, rending you defenseless to battle against it? Which is it? Or have you seen the victory over sin that characterizes true Christians. Is Christ your ruler? Is Christ your king? Is Christ sweeter to you than your sin? Well, some of you will say, I don't know. Sometimes. Sometimes I think He is, and at other times He isn't. Well, let me ask you, maybe this will help. Do you long for heaven so that you will be with Christ so that you might be forever ridded of this world of sin? Don't you just say to yourself at times, I just want Christ to come back. I just want to go and be with Christ so that I can be ridded of these thoughts and this body of sin. Do you hate the sins you commit? And if you commit them, do you want to quickly repent of them? Do you enjoy reading God's Word? Do you enjoy coming to the triune God in prayer, communing with the Lord of life? You see, it's these kinds of questions and answers that will determine the issue 
in your life and my life of dominion? Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord of your life? Paul says, if you've died, Roman believers, if you've died to the power of the reign of sin in your life, you'll not allow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the sinful passions to be obeyed. You can control those passions. For the first time in your life, you can say no to them, yes to Christ. It gives us a third command here as well. Look at the first part of verse 13a. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here's the principle. Those dead to sin and alive to Christ must not allow themselves to be used as unrighteous weapons. See, if you're a true Christian, if you're truly dead to sin and alive to Christ, you will not allow, you must not allow yourself to be used as an unrighteous weapon. That's what he says here. And I want you to notice how deeply Paul goes into these issues of the believer in sin. This is an amazing thing. Look at verse 12. He speaks, excuse me, verse 11. He speaks of the generic you there. You. And then in verse 12, he speaks even more deeply of the believer's mortal body going down deeper. And then in verse 13, he goes even more deeply by speaking of the members of your body. Do you see? He's just going deeper and deeper and deeper into the realm of the believer and his life with sin. He's first saying you, then he says your body, and then he says the members of your body. He's pinning us right down to the nitty-gritty of the Christian's battle with sin. And by the way, this is also present tense action. Do not ever present your members to sin. Or we could say it another way. Constantly avoid the use of your members to sin. You say, what is members? Just talking about a person's life, a person's sinful activity. We know what members are. It's our, it's our limbs. It's not, of course, talking about our physical body as such, even though, of course, we have limbs. They are our members. But he's going inside and he's saying the, the spiritual members of your life, the stuff that's inside you, your mind, and then how your body brings that to fruition. Now, we know that's the case because look at verse 14. In parallel language, he says, to present yourselves He's not talking about just the physical body there. Remember, he's personifying sin as a human body. And it's like someone is using their body as a weapon of warfare. In fact, the word instruments in verse 13 is the Greek word hapla. And it's borrowed from the military realm of the day. It's a warfare, folks. This is a spiritual battle. This is a warfare. In fact, you know what? A heavily armored Greek foot soldier was called a hoplites. Soldier who has a weapon. That's the imagery that Paul is using here, it seems. That we must, as a consistent aspect of our new lives under the dominion of our present sovereign Jesus Christ, never ever use our lives, our minds or our bodies as a weapon in the spiritual battle A weapon of unrighteousness. That's what he's saying. Don't do it. I command you, he says, not to do it. Don't present your body as a weapon of unrighteousness. And I must ask again, what about you? 
What about your life? If you walk away from the church building, what do you think? What's in your mind? How do you act that out in your heart? How do you act that out in the actions of your life? What do you even do with your physical body? How are you doing in your battle against the powers of darkness? Are you resisting the devil? Is he fleeing from you because you say, Be gone, Satan. I'm not going to use my weapon. I'm not going to use my life as a weapon of unrighteousness. You know, and someone's probably immediately, immediately going to say, but the, but the battle is so intense. Yes, it is. But does not the Word of God say, First John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is God's power than any power of Satan or sin or the world. You say, I believe that, but I need help. I need help. Well, if you need help, I'm sorry, the only three, three things you have at your disposal are the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. That's all. That's all you have. That's enough. That's enough. That's all you need. That's our sufficiency. And does not Paul say in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You can do it. Indeed, you must do it because that's who you are in Christ. You're with Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection. He's your new Lord of life. You don't have to do it. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You're going to need it. You're going to need the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You can do it. You can do it, believer. God will give you His Word. He will give you His Spirit. He will give you His people and they will help you. And because you're in union with Christ, you can say no to that sin of your life. You can do it. And He gives a fourth and final command here. Those dead to sin and alive to Christ must live righteously by grace. You must live righteously by grace. Look at the latter part of verse 13 of Romans 6. It's not just the put off of not presenting your, yourself as a weapon of unrighteousness, but it's also the put on. But present yourselves to God. That's a command. Aorist command. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Not unrighteousness, for righteousness. For sin will have no lordship over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under the condemning dictates of the law of God anymore. Moses' law, you were condemned by it. It slew you. It condemned you. You were judged by it. But he says now that you're in Jesus Christ, you're now not under law, but under grace. That's why John says in John 1, that there was the law of Moses... It was here, but now grace and truth have been realized in Jesus Christ. There is something that you must put off. That's your 
life as a weapon of unrighteousness. And there is something that you put on, and that is your life as a weapon of good, of righteousness, of right behavior, of right actions, of right thinking. Why? Because you've been brought from death to life. You've been brought from death to life. You've been raised from the dead. You've been forever removed from Adam's race and graciously placed under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's no middle ground here, no ethereal middle. You can't just say, all right, I'm going to not do the things I know I shouldn't do and then stop there. No, you've got to go on to do the things that you know you should do. That's completeness. And by the way, isn't that phrase a weapon of righteousness Instrument of righteousness, literally weapon, a weapon of righteousness. Isn't that an interesting one? This is what you can say to God. God, I'm presenting myself to you on the basis of my having been brought by Jesus Christ from death to life as a spiritual warfare weapon of righteousness. What an act of consecration to God. What an act act of obedience. Use me in whatever way you see fit, Lord. I acknowledge that sin's dominion has been shattered, rendered powerless in me, and I am eager not to live under the bondage of the law and its demands, but I am living under the dominion of grace. What a fantastic prayer to pray. Have you prayed that kind of prayer? Is that your prayer? Or do you still live under the threat of the divine judgment of the law? And I ask, I must ask, why would you want to live under the lordship of God's judgment instead of living under the lordship of divine grace? Who who would want to do that? Well, I tell you, those true Christians who are said to be dead to sin and alive to Christ must live righteously by grace. They can And they must. Bow together with me in prayer. If your heart affirms these four biblical commands, give a silent amen and a new resolve to being with Christ, alive to Him and dead to sin. And for those of you who do not presently obey these commands, but you desire to, you've heard the truth this morning, pray this with me. God the Father, to whom we pray through the Son of God, and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, hear my prayer. I present myself to you as an instrument of righteousness. I acknowledge that I have now been brought into the realm of divine grace. Delivered from the demands of the law. And because of Christ's own death for me, I affirm that I've been brought from death to life. I will not allow 
sin to reign in my life. To obey its passions. And I consider myself dead to sin. And alive to Christ Jesus. For His sake I do now pray. Amen.